what matters most in learning. The challenge, the thrill, the benefits, interacting with other people, or something else entirely. What is the connection between leading and learning? Does change drive learning, or does learning drive change? What's more important, teaching or learning? Is everyone a leader, a learner, a teacher? Want answers? Listen in as we address these intriguing issues through commentary and with guests who share their thinking and tell us their stories. Lead. Learn. Change. It is important to provide multiple opportunities for success to students in the classroom and at the whole school level. Schools do mitigate the negative effects of other stuff going on in the society, whether it's poverty or other things that are associated with poverty. The level of inequality and hardship that people would face would be way worse if we didn't have public schools. It's not healthy for an organization to have conflicting programs and initiatives. That classrooms where it really happens and you can't, you can't have someone who really excels in the classroom if their hands are tied. I started to get it, I started to see the value of thinking this way about teaching and learning. Today, we go deep into research. While our guest spends time on research terminology and design, he also lands on the other side, results. If you want to learn how evidence generated from case studies and learning visits clearly reinforces the idea that teachers matter and that focusing on engagement can make a huge difference in professional learning, you will want to hear this entire conversation. Teachers matter, so too does research. Today's guest on Lead, Learn, Change is Dr. Mark Garrison. Mark, thanks for taking your time to speak with me today. You're welcome, David. Much appreciated. Glad to be here. We want to start with two very deep and philosophical items. One, what's the weather like there in Amarillo, Texas? And two, have you seen any rattlesnakes yet? Well, I'm going to answer the second question first. The answer is no. (laughs) Okay. And the first question is that it has been raining like we're in the tropics here for the last five days, and it's cold and wet. So speaking of cold and wet, especially jumping in on cold, uh, do you think you're going to enjoy the winter weather at West Texas A&M where you live and work now, or will you be pining for the days of snow and ice in Buffalo, New York? I'm promised that we'll get a few inches of snow, so I'll at least have some aesthetic reminder of home. Um, And generally, we have four seasons here, so I'm told. So I'm looking forward to that common experience. But I will be going home over the winter break, and so we'll uh, actually be going skiing with the family. So I think I'm going to get the best of both worlds. Uh, Sounds great. So for some background for our listeners, Mark is a speaker, an occasional blogger, a professor, consultant, award-winning author, researcher, presenter has spent over two decades working with educators and is a supporter of teacher leaders and those who work with them. We should also let our listeners know that Mark's a musician. He works with other musicians, has his own sound studio, and has produced some albums and some singles. Now, Mark, our working partnership grew out of a conversation that you and I had back in 2012, I think, and I had just started the Impact Project at Page, and you presented at a conference that I attended. And you were really expanding on the, the basic themes of, of your book, A Measure of Failure. And that prompted me to approach you to see if you would be interested in reviewing and giving me some feedback on the, 
basic structure of the impact project of the work that I just started. And you said, sure, that you take a look at it. So I followed up by phone a little bit later and that conversation led you to propose a research project. And naturally you asked for uh, multiple types of data and you asked me lots of questions. And then we created, I believe jointly with you as lead, the design for our initial case study. And that's a great place to start. So if you would begin by telling us about the types of data or evidence, as we often call it, that we used in that first case study. And if you can roll into that response, explaining what propositions are and the basic process for how those components come together to assess the impact of Paige's professional learning practices. That'd be great. Sure. So it's actually good to start with the question of data and evidence. So what we, what we started off thinking about was what are the goals of the professional learning? And then we thought very carefully about what types of evidence would we see if those goals were being achieved? So then, of course, there's data, meaning you go collect information of some kind, whether uh, it's a school improvement plan or an interview with the principal or observation of a classroom or whatever. But the idea was to be clear on what it was that was trying to be achieved and then to come up with two types of evidence to help us evaluate whether or not those goals were being achieved. And the particular way we did that was by creating propositions. So propositions are statements of what you expect to see if things are working the way you think they work, right? So as a result of attending page professional learning sessions, for you know, working on engagement and, and, and other themes related to that, we would expect to see this, right? We would expect to hear teachers talk about their classroom this way. We would expect to hear principals talk about their leadership this way. We would expect to see students doing this kind of work. And each one of those propositions would be stated in the affirmative. Teachers see their role as collaborate, collaboratively developing lesson plans with other teachers that are focused on engagement, taking the motives and interests of students into account. Then we would create what's called a counter proposition, which is we would look for evidence that that's not taking place. So you have the propositions of what you expect to see if things are going as planned. And then you have essentially the opposite proposition, or what we called a counter proposition, which was the same statement I just made, but in the reverse. We don't see teachers doing this. We don't see evidence of, of we see students doing other things than we would expect. We hear principals talking about their role or leadership in ways that are not what we would expect after having gone through the, uh, in that time, it was, I think, five years or more of page professional learning experiences in school discussions with page staff. That model is called a case study design, and it, it sets up the standard that you use is many different types of evidence that you can get a hold of. So you're not, re you're not relying on a single indicator to make a judgment. You're trying to find as many different types of evidence. And when those types of evidence point in similar directions, you have more confidence that what you're finding is actually what exists and not just someone's opinion or your own overly positive or negative bias or interpretation. We relied heavily on uh, structured focus groups with teachers who had both been through the process and teachers who were new to the school or who had not been attending professional learning. And we asked them similar questions, right? So the, the idea there was to compare if the professional learning was giving rise to the kinds of transformation that was intended, we would expect to see the teachers who participated more speak differently than the newer teachers. Um, if they were speaking in similar ways, then that might be the reflection of some other things, either community culture or past history of the school or 
concern about the policy context or other changes in the community. We also interviewed people who were key players, either in terms of the school leadership or in terms of their role in the PAGE professional learning. And that was a very important part of that first study, which was retrospective, meaning the professional experiences and work at the school had already transpired. It wasn't that they had stopped doing it when we got there, but they had been going on for years. So we were asking people to recall. In addition to that, we asked for documents. Hey, you had a professional learning session on you know, building choice into lesson or whatever it is that they had been learning in the PL sessions. And we would say, can we have a copy of those documents? So we would look at the documents. I don't know if you recall, but there was actually a fair amount of emails between PAGE staff and the, particip- the two schools that participated in that case study. We could see the process as it was in motion. And you could say that's kind of, that's kind of historical, right? We're looking at these documents to see how things unfolded. We also asked both schools for samples of student work, uh, which was often in the case of pictures of things on the wall or other things students had done, and also syllabi or efforts that teachers had to structure their curriculum, how it looked, and we could look at those lesson plans for like, oh, are they building choice, avoiding adverse consequences for students? We'd look at some of the practical philosophies that people learn in the, in the PL sessions to make the classes more engaging for students. We also looked at school improvement plans, and those are interesting because you can see the link or non-link between what you see in the school and what's in the plan, and you can also see uh, there you can explore the weight of other forces that affect the school, right? So the school has to respond to different communities, state education departments, federal guidelines and or mandate, other types of concerns or questions. Also, uh, maybe they want to focus on their relationship with the community or parents, And so we looked at those documents as well. It was quite a comprehensive set of types of evidence or types of data that could really paint a broader picture of what's taking place at a school, in classrooms, interactions between colleagues, interactions between teachers and students, and the type of work or experiences that are being designed for for the learners. And in that list of types of evidence or data, you did not mention often during the actual study or just now or weigh heavily, you know, standardized test scores as an indicator of successful implementation of of practices that are emphasized in the PAGE professional learning sessions. So given the focus of your book and what you've learned about public schools in Georgia as a result of your study here, take just a minute to briefly explain the proper role that standardized test scores can and should play in determining the value of a a student's learning experience. And I read one of your blog posts from a few years back. It was, I believe, 2015, and it was titled Metric Morality. You discussed concepts uh, such as ranking uh, versus measurement and cut scores and concerns with validity and diverting the focus from from metrics that truly matter. And I believe you just listed a bunch of the metrics that truly matter. So as you now discussed previously, we should really bump that conversation and talk about standardized tests in a different way, not our standardized tests bad, our standardized tests good, but dig into that a little bit more deeply and show the role that they play. So for now, give us just enough to make us want to learn a little bit more just want to clarify that Paige is not seeking to bash test scores or indicate they have no value. We just want to change the conversation 
to indicate or articulate the solid reasoning behind you know, what an appropriate balance is between the measures that feed into and that grow out of effective teaching and learning exchanges. Well, let me begin by saying that the other piece of data we collected that I didn't mention was uh, interviews and focus groups with students. There's a great deal of emphasis on, on testing students and asking them to demonstrate what they've learned uh, through, the, through the, the tests that uh, come from the state and also teacher-made tests. But maybe we don't pay enough attention on hearing what students' experiences are. So it's a general principle that if you, if you want to understand something as complex as a school, or even let's get smaller, something as complex as a professional learning experience that lasts for five years, and your charge is to how do I evaluate if this professional learning experience is achieving its goals? What kind of effect is it having on participants? Where is it effective? Where is it not effective? It's unreasonable for any indicator to substitute for the range of uh, evidence that actually exists. If you think of it as a, as a crime investigation, right? If you really want to understand what happened, you have to interview multiple people. You have to go back in history. You have to understand people's relationships. You have to know the facts of where people were at what time to understand what was going on. You know, was there really a flight to Venezuela at that time? Could the guy really, you know, you need all that evidence to be able to come to a comprehensive understanding. And so that's the general approach we took to evaluating and thinking about, hey, what is the value of this professional learning? So you wanted a range of evidence. So the, the issue with standardized tests is that we have a debate. It's, a, it's really 150 years old, actually, David. Are standardized tests fair, equitable, good, promote equality, or um, are they harmful to teaching and learning, you know, limit creativity, and so on and so forth? So we have that debate, and that debate's been cycling like a broken record for, for a long time, especially since the invention of, of intelligence tests, and then since the No Child Left Behind, especially. What we want to do is we want to start by trying to understand them. Why do we have them? They're a fact of educational life, and they play a variety of roles. They do play an educational role. You know, teachers and principals do look at the items and see which one student got wrong, and they try and make adjustments in their curriculum and teaching strategies based on that. But they also play a political role, right? They're an accountability tool used by federal and state governments because there's a long-standing problem in, in the relationship between educators at the building level, teachers and principals, and the relative trust or lack thereof with the authorities above them. So the, the whole reason standardized tests developed was to solve a political problem. We don't trust what the teachers and educators are doing in buildings. Is that distrust warranted or not? It's not merely a technical question. So the, the other piece is that the reason it's so hard for us to talk about standardized tests is they're actually a technology. And our culture is really kind of bad. We have a weird relationship with technology. We adulate it and expect it to solve all of our problems. And we're deathly afraid of it. The robots are going to take over the world. You know, if handwriting goes away, people are going to become completely illiterate. Yet we want the computer to do everything and everything has to be in the cloud. And so we have the same sort of difficult relationship with assessment technologies. Human beings have been assessing their educational efforts in a variety of ways. It doesn't necessarily look like standardized tests, but they've been doing it for time immemorial. It's a natural human thing to make a judgment about your efforts. How am I doing? Am I doing a good job? Am I progressing in some way? Am I, am I good at hunting? Or do I need more work at hunting? Whatever it is, it's a natural part. So standardized testing is a very particular form of assessment that emerged at a very particular time for very specific reasons. And until we come to grips and understand that origin, where these things came from, 
we're going to have a difficult time in figuring out what we should do with them or what should we should not do with them. And I'll just end by saying it's real important for everybody to realize that standardized tests are just a standard. It's a tool for making a judgment, comparison, or measurement. Now, they're not measurements in the way weight or temperature is a measurement, but they certainly are used to make comparisons or assessments or judgments about people. Now, it's the fact that all standards in every field reflect the values and interests of those who establish them. So the beginning point for solving and making productive headway in discussions about standardized tests is to assert that teachers and building principals especially need to be involved in thinking about what kind of assessments are most useful to be a decision maker in the nature and function of those tests, what they look like, how they operate, when they're given. And you'll see that a lot of the tension over testing is really over who's excluded and included from the development of the tests in the first place. So it's a technical discussion at one level, right? What is measurement, what is not measurement? But it's also a cultural discussion, which is who should be involved in setting standards for uh, what students are learning in school and how well they're learning it. Parents have views, teachers have views, politicians have views, local business people have views. And the fact of the matter is there's a very small group of people making all those decisions. And whenever you have that happen, you're going to have some conflict. And so having an educational discussion about assessment and also realizing that assessment's also gotten itself connected to political and economic concerns, right? Test scores are related to property values. No one really wants that to happen necessarily, or didn't, they weren't invented as a measure of property value, but they've become integrated into that system. And so they, because they're so integrated in these other things that really don't have a lot to do with what goes on in a classroom, they affect what goes on in a classroom. And so that's why there's consternation, there's a lot of emotion, and we need to start over and sort of say, okay, we need a new understanding of what these things are and where they came from. And then we need to have a framework for how teachers and educators can insert themselves in the discussion about assessment in a way that's productive for them as a profession, but also takes into account the voices, motives, and interests of the youth, right? The people in the, the, the school is there to educate the next generation of young people, prepare them for adulthood. So what kind of assessment actually serves that aim? We can use that quickly right now as a way to say, okay, how well do these tests help prepare young people for their future? And we could go through and collect data, which would be both the actual data of the test data. We could do comparative analysis to other countries. We could look in the past how other countries have evaluated their schools. And we could look at how well youth are or are not prepared for their future activities as parents, citizens, and employees. I should have given the full title or shared the full title of your book, A Measure of Failure, The Political Origins of Standardized Testing. That would have certainly indicated why you have such a deep understanding of and passion about the topic. Some of the indicators that some places require to be embedded in professional learning experiences to get quote-unquote credit, like raising test scores and graduation rates, etc., are not the focus of meaningful professional learning that we're talking about today. So when you focus on things instead over which teachers have direct control, such as quality relationships, structuring a learning environment in a certain way, and designing work for learners, those are, those are within the realm of a teacher's control. So when you structure things that way, that seems to have a lot more value 
for the participant and then have much more transfer to practices in the classroom that benefit learners. So could you talk about that and what you've observed about that type of approach? Because people need to also know that you've not just worked in Georgia, you have been working with people in other places. So you have a broad range of experiences from which to draw. So what have you observed about this type of approach? I'm going to approach it first about what's unique about it, because that also informed how we studied it. The first thing is fairly simple and obvious, but it, it, it makes a huge difference is that it's not a one-shot approach. It's, it's explicitly developmental and that people who participate, teachers in particular, go through a journey of exploring um, their understandings of students and designing work for students and what it means to collaborate with colleagues in a new way, right? And what it means to collaborate with administrators. Our goal was to really evaluate were the kinds of transformations at that level taking place. So we examined the beliefs, values, norms, and roles of educators. And we had uh, you and I and our teams, respective teams, crafted those propositions about beliefs and norms and values and roles of students and teachers and principals that would be consistent with what we would expect to change or be transformed in a school if the professional learning was really having the impact that it was designed to have. And what we found was this, that we didn't set out to do this. It wasn't, it wasn't explicit, but this point about trust. So in the schools where we found the most evidence that these kinds of practices were being tested out and tried by the folks who participated and sometimes even shared with people who didn't, right? Uh, different ways to bring teachers together to evaluate their lessons very quickly where teachers could have really honest and supportive discussions with each other. Hey, I tried this. Why didn't it work? And there's a framework that they learn how to think about, uh, you know, a protocol to think about going back and trying the lesson again, but trying different things based on feedback from colleagues. All of those things require trust between the colleagues and uh, the, your colleagues, your peers, and the administration and the teachers as a, as a more general rule. And in schools where we saw that trust strongest, we also saw more conditions for them to take up these ideas about engagement, about the design qualities like choice or focusing on the actual designing the work for students with their motives, interest, and background in mind so that the student can make a connection between their experiences and world and the, the values and goals that the society has for what it is that they're supposed to learn. So that was probably one of the more consistent findings we had across our experience with uh, schools in Georgia, but it's also somewhat generalized with other work that we've seen in other buildings, uh, in other school districts, right? This trust thing, we, I think we phrase it as, creates the conditions for more focus on engagement, both of staff and students. In terms of PAGE, um, I would frame it as a, as a question of more intrinsic motivation. That is, how, does the, how do we get it so that students can take their own energies and apply it to what the school's asking them to do in a way where they're like, hey, this is interesting and meaningful to me, and I'm putting my effort into it. And there's a sense that the teachers said, yes, that's an important thing to work on. Um, and that we really, we saw solid evidence that that occurred. The more they participated regularly in the PL sessions, right, so this is still over you know, years, right? It's not you go one weekend and you're done and you come back to your school and that's it. This is an ongoing iterative process. The more participation, the more teachers and administrators started to think differently about what do I believe about my role? And that seems when you talk to people 
who aren't necessarily professional educators, you know, with the role of a teacher, you know, it's like, what, you know, you should know that. But in fact, it's a very complicated question because it, how you frame that role changes the dynamic in the classroom and the characteristics of the school. And I think eventually the outcomes, how the students are actually socialized and educated. The third thing that we, that we saw that was really important was the emphasis on multiple opportunities for success. So there's a, there's a philosophy that, you know, the homework is due. If you didn't turn it in, you get an F. Or you did the best in your project, the grade is the grade. And this is meant to mirror the adult world of, assign, you know, your, your boss tells you the report's due on Friday and the report's due on Friday. And that has a place. And I think a lot of teachers feel that it's their responsibility is to socialize young people to be responsible in the way that I just described. At the same time, you saw transformation saying, yes, that's true. But when we're learning, right, when, when I'm an employee and I'm, I've got to do the report, it's presumed I'm already, I've already reached a certain level of maturity and intellectual development and emotional uh, poise. When I'm 14 or 8, I'm still developing. And w- would I think the value, the, the third thing that we found was that educators were saying, you know what, it is important to provide multiple opportunities for success to students in the classroom and at the whole school level. And we, we had propositions about that and we looked for that. And we found that the more people participated, the more evidence was the school and the classroom teachers were saying, you know what, I'm going to try, try this out and provide more opportunities for students to do that. So the trust, on the one hand, the significance and value of focusing on engagement, and finally, this idea that it's appropriate to provide multiple opportunities for success for students to try it again, give it another shot. Uh, Maybe you want a different way of presenting what you understand. And so that... Uh, it's a much more developmental and iterative process of, of teaching and learning as opposed to a more one shot. You know, you had your chance. That's it. You got to see, you know, students need to be evaluated where their work is not not appropriate or up to standard. They should be. But that doesn't preclude saying maybe there's a, maybe we can move to the next level and say, let's try again or let's try in a different way. So those are the, the three things that we observed. And I would say create or limit how much of that stuff happens has more to do with the policy context and the way the school district is interacting with that policy context. That really is a great segue into barriers or challenges or obstacles to shifting, even incrementally over time, one's practices with students, with lesson design, with colleagues, uh, how you message about what's really going on at school. There's so many things that this could spin off into. And without getting into a lot of policy context discussion at this point, think about and talk about for a second some of the factors that are truly beyond the, the realm of the individual educator's influence. What are practical ways that teachers and administrators can do their work in the way that they want to for the benefit of learning and learners the best way possible and the most professional way possible, despite or alongside some of the challenges and factors that press in on classrooms and schools? Well, the first thing, I had a a very influential colleague and mentor who told me as just a general life slogan was that there's always something you can do to improve things. So that's not meant to negate 
the limitations that exist because of the conditions of poverty or because of the stranglehold of certain policy mandates over uh, what schools are able to try or do or feel at liberty to do. And a lot of this turns on how we frame what it is we're saying. So as a, as a general rule, people work very hard. This is a real thing. You, you're working very hard in these external conditions, create real pressures, and you get to the point where you say, ah, oh, you know, there's nothing I can do. What we actually know from research is that schools do mitigate the negative effects of other stuff going on in the society, whether it's poverty or other things that are associated with poverty. So they don't, they're not capable of solving or eradicating those difficulties, but they do mitigate them such that if we did a thought experiment, if we said, well, everyone's, you know, if the kids are, if the kids are living in poverty, they, you know, we can't be held accountable for their performance because the conditions of poverty are so debilitating. That may be true to some extent, especially depending on how it's, what kind of extreme or non-extreme situation we're talking about. But the fact of the matter is, if we removed public schools altogether, things would be way worse. Teachers don't realize the overall effect they have historically on actually keeping things from becoming more more desperate in communities that are that face a lot of challenges and so the, that's why the the value of public schools and the value of the work educators do and teachers in particular is so important even if the day-to-day -day experience feels like it's not making a difference actually if we look at the data over the last you know actually here we can just use things like test scores and graduation rates and associate them with things like jobs and income the level of inequality and hardship that people would face would be way worse if we didn't have public schools now, it is an illusion to say public schools are going to solve those problems. Now, in terms of practical solutions in the classroom, what we've learned from the work with Paige is that if we take the design qualities, so these are, these are techniques or frameworks for thinking about how to interact with young people and engage them in the work. So let's take the simple example of choice because it's really easy to understand. And what people get frustrated with is they say, well, I have a group of learners in my class. They face some significant challenges at home. They're in fourth grade, but they're reading at a first grade level. There's a lot of behavior issues. I can't provide those students choice because it's too hard to manage my class. Now, the question there is, that's right. You can't provide them the same choices that you would provide students who don't have those kinds of experiences. So the issue with the framework is to figure out what type of choice can I give this particular set of learners such that it will push them forward and, and enable them to start where they are and move forward. In some groups of students, especially if they face strong, you know, their, their communities under-resourced and there's a lot of needs not being met, and I'm not just talking about healthcare, emotional needs, some of the framework, such as removing adverse consequences, may be more significant to focus on at a certain part in, in, uh, over the course of a, of a given academic year, right? So if the students are particularly feeling beaten down or hopeless, then focusing on getting them to do work and not having adverse consequences is very important. And then building in the, okay, let's push them to the next level. Sometimes building choice into that can be scary for people who don't feel competent to, to activate the choice, right? It requires a certain level of development and emotional maturity to say, I, I can choose what book to read. Maybe that's not an appropriate choice for a set of learners, but a different type of choice, like how do I share with the teacher what I've learned might be something that they feel uh, better about. I, if the aim is to get the kid to read and demonstrate what they learned, maybe have, making them do the essay isn't the right thing. Maybe making a video or something that the kid's interested in and then working on the writing part as you move forward. So I think people get frustrated because a lot of the recommendations seem to be very general. 
remove adverse consequences, focus on products. Uh, what, are, what else? We, name some of the other ones I'm missing. I keep focusing on them. Um, uh, but there's novelty and variety, affirmation and performance, affiliation, content and substance. So at, let's talk about affirmation and performance. So I think one can get frustrated because they see some of the performances wanting, you know, if the, if the student's performing at the first grade level in many areas and then in fourth grade, one's going to say, well, I can't affirm this because it's, you know, it's below grade level or it's below expectation. And it's sort of saying, okay, but can we find a way for the student to demonstrate some of the learning, however, and then build on that to uh, uh, raise their level of, say, formal writing in English, right? So sometimes if a student gets to talk about what they understand, which is something they're more familiar with doing, and if they're not good at reading and writing yet, then you, you can build that in. So one of the things that I think we're going to discuss more is what's different about the professional learning model that Paige is supporting and facilitating is precisely the idea that it's a way of thinking about designing lessons that people are being introduced to. It's not a series of steps. First, add the garlic, cook the garlic for five minutes, and then add the onions, right? It's not like that. It's thinking about understanding classroom dynamics and curriculum development using a framework to make decisions. And that framework can be applied to any circumstance. So we did find schools that had significant levels of students classified at free and reduced meals being able to engage in these types of activities. These teachers were able to pull it off in their classrooms. They did the lessons. They made it work in their classrooms. The students didn't behave poorly or weren't able to engage. And in fact, it seemed like it was creating uh, a more positive environment in the school, right? Now, of course, we also found that the trust was important for that to happen. Um, trust in supporting relationships, especially with students who are uh, lacking the resources and supports for whatever reason, um, is very important to them. Those relationships are very important to create the condition. So the framework applied to the concrete condition. So you have to yourself, ask yourself, what is it that these students are going through right now? Um, so that's why I think some of the work that Paige did on the question of poverty was helpful for teachers because it got them to think about being the students, what are the students' needs, and something as practical as, you know, I'm asking them to bring a notebook and they feel bad about that, right? So and in a sense, that's an adverse consequence that the teacher didn't even intend until the teacher said, you know what, I need to reframe my understanding of what these students are living like and what they're living through. And then use the framework to appropriately channel each one of these design qualities at their level, their level emotionally, right? How much frustration can they handle? Intellectually, you know, what is their reading level? What, what, what's their background knowledge? What's their vocabulary? And behavioral, like, do they know how to cooperate? And so if those things aren't all there, then you build those qualities in practically at the level the student's at, which was, of course, the aim of pushing them forward. Now, is it harder? Yeah, it is. It's probably also people, you know, historically speaking, the teachers who do that work, they could never be appreciated enough, David. Um, and, we, and you and I have witnessed that together in some of the schools we visited where that just, you know, the that sometimes the teacher is that one that one positive thing in that child's life or group of ch child's life and the, the teacher teacher pays the price for that as a professional and that's why that's why one of the goals we have is to support professional educators and advocate for their their professional status their heightened role in decision making and that their voices uh, influence policy because they do really live it day to day. They do really have a fairly fairly good set of ideas of what would help improve the situation, and uh, they already have, although in ways we haven't fully documented, helped a lot of people who would otherwise be in way worse situations than they are. And now we're talking about sort of the negative things, but I think 
I tried to do two things there. One is explain what was unique about the, about the approach to professional learning, right? You're not, you know, here's how to use the software. If you do this technique uh, with your students in the class, you know, you, you follow it like a cookbook. So that one thing is that it's different because it's different. It's more powerful, but it's also harder to grasp and it's easier. It's frustrating, right? Like I can't provide my, you know, I have to, you know, I have to tell them that the behavior is wrong. They have to have adverse consequences. I'm not saying there shouldn't be consequences for the behavior. What I'm saying is that when you have a specific learning goal in mind, you want to have it such that the student is able to try and keep trying. And one of the conditions for doing that is that you remove as many of the unnecessary adverse consequences. No, you can't hit other children. No one's saying that. No, you can't cheat or, or whatever happens in, in the situation that is unacceptable. But you can create using that framework, looking at your specific, it's place-based education. Right? You have to deal with the students in front of you. That, that is harder, um, but we saw examples of where when people use the framework in their classroom with students who faced, uh, you know, many of these challenges, you know, you also saw the beauty of humanity because kids have a tendency when they're given a little bit, they can, they can do a lot. And we did find examples where teachers were able to work with students from a variety of backgrounds. They were able to connect with them. And fortunately, they don't necessarily have the a professional authority to make the kinds of decisions that are needed to really push that forward. And I think that's one of the outcomes we both hope from this work is that we can change the conversation a little bit about accountability in public education, such that the proper and dignified place of professional educators and classroom teachers is, is center to that discussion and respectful. That reminds me that I should definitely mention that Page does not view its work as the silver bullet. First of all, we don't consider anything that we do a programmatic. There's a big difference between frameworks and programs, and that's a topic for another day. But this is not a silver bullet, nor do we think that we've landed on the set of processes. Even inside this research, we've made changes over time. In fact, you know, we've We've moved away from the historical case study approach that you described at the outset of our conversation, and we've shifted that a couple of times, and there are reasons for doing that. So I wonder if you would be willing to talk for a moment about the shifts in the processes that we've used, Mark, to, to capture the evidence, you know, historical case study versus you know, real-time as it unfolds network versus not versus, but then a shift to the current emphasis on individual educators through through learning visits. Sure. Well, let me begin by thanking Phil Schlechty for one of the most important things uh, he said in terms of my own thinking about education. And he said at one point in which book I don't remember, but he, it, he's very simple, um, but it can be used to for a teacher or actually anyone working with people to get started in a good way in solving a problem, which is that it's the activity of the learner that causes learning. Teachers don't cause learning. They create the conditions for learning. And so that, going back to the example that I just gave and then crediting Phil Schlechty and his team and, and, and the Schlechty Center with the work and effort that they're doing to elaborate and involve people in that kind of discussion, it's a very important point. What causes learning is the activity of the learner. So then everything is geared around activating the learner and not, not in the sometimes silly way that you hear, but activating the learner in a profound way, the way that I think is emblematic of the kinds of sessions that you folks organize. Because of that, 
we had a range of, uh, we, we did the case studies, which were historical by nature, because that's when we connected with you and you wanted to see if we could design something that would explore what the effect has been. Is this making a difference? Um, and we selected two schools that we thought were similar enough in terms of their participation, but unique enough for us to learn something about what are the factors involved that create the conditions for professional learning to work. We ended that report thinking, you know, it can't just be at the school level, it should be the district. And we had this initiative to have uh, networks of districts joining together in professional learning. And that, that was really an educational experience. And we designed, uh, because we're dealing with a much larger group of schools, we, we had surveys. Now, surveys are great, but they tend to be global. And so we, we learned some things in the general sense about network participants and what they were learning and what, and what was going on in their school. And some of that we could attribute to page professional learning experiences. We also realized that there's this larger context. Again, this, there's the social context, which we can talk about the economic, social, and cultural conditions of a community that a school serves. And we can talk about the policy context, the legal, political, and governmental context in which a school works, whether it's a school board or policies from the federal government or uh, whatever. And that network experience of districts signing up to participate sensitized us to how hard it is for a district to put their weight behind one single initiative. Not, that's not a criticism. That's just a, that, that's a larger discussion for us to think about with policymakers of how we can create the conditions for districts to have a more unified focus based on their own needs assessment of where they, need, where they are, where they've been, and where they need to go. And that led us to our current initiative which is to go back to the classroom, to get to the center of the teaching and learning where we survey students in the teacher's classroom. We observe the teacher in the classroom. We take notes and we have a system for making observations about that. We then meet with the teacher to debrief about that experience. And it's not evaluative. It's sort of like, tell me how you were thinking about your classroom that day. What was going on that day? And in doing that, we learn about how the teacher is thinking, what their needs are, what their concerns are, what, their, what strategies they develop that work. And we can link that to their professional learning opportunities, right? We can, one, we can see where teachers are actually using things that they've learned in their context, not just filling out on a survey, yeah, I, you know, I do this or I don't do that, or I work with teachers this way, or I don't work with teachers that way. Here, we're focused on really getting in the classroom because one of the findings we had was that while there was a general change in beliefs and reconsidering roles, that we didn't, we didn't have enough evidence about the particulars. How in particular are teachers working in their classroom? What kind of things would help them? What kind of things are they not finding helpful? So by going into the classroom and debriefing with them about a real classroom experience, looking at how students responded to a survey with the student's voice, and taking all of that and using it to both evaluate with what the professional learning is, is providing or not providing, but also enriching our understanding of the professional work of educators and trying to be, I think, in a, in a, and soon we'll be in a position where we can start to present that for both educational purposes, but also policy purposes. Like These are how professionals are actually working and making decisions. These are the kinds of supports they need. These are the kinds of successes they're having. And that will improve, hopefully, the conversation about the policy context, but hopefully it will improve the conversation about what kind of professional learning is meaningful and useful to educators and really puts their voice in the center of the question, what's the value of this professional learning, right? So we're observing them during their work. 
We're talking to them about their work. We're asking the students in their class about their experience. Maybe we're collecting some artifacts. Sometimes, as you know, we have a follow-up interview because the discussion with the teacher is so rich. Teachers actually like the ones that we've practiced this with, David, really like the experience, that experience. It's not filling out some survey. It's, you know, which everyone's fatigued by. It's really a chance for them to discuss and reflect on their work. So that's the quick overview of the history of how we kind of started as a case study with schools retrospectively and ended up with a focus on the classroom, the teacher, and the student, and the kinds of nuances and decisions that are making to inform the professional learning and learn about where it's making a difference. The focus on or the focus at the classroom level and on the individual teacher as the place where our research is now is definitely appropriate and the right thing to do. I mean, teachers matter in this process of teaching and learning more than anything else. And so when we get to have one-on-one interaction with them, it really enriches our understanding of what they do and what they need to support their work. And I want to clarify or expand on something you said in that response where you talked about going into a classroom, conducting observations, taking notes. If we leave it there, although you did expand on it some, I just want to add to that. That sounds initially to people very traditional and very evaluative, although you did say it's not evaluative. I want to emphasize that the learning visits that we conduct are truly not evaluative. We call them learning visits because we are learning. As soon as the visit is, has ended, then we capture our thinking about that particular visit. And it's really in a very simple format, which is what did I actually observe? What did I see and hear? What was happening? What did I learn as a result of being in that space with those people for that time? And I believe the pivotal one is what do I want to learn more about? So when we go back and speak with the teacher, about that day, about that lesson, that experience, we focus on, here's what I want to learn more about. And the teacher gets an opportunity to share his or her thinking about the development of the lesson, what they might do differently, why they chose to do what they did. And it's so different from any other type of conversation after someone visits your classroom than most people are familiar with that it's I think it's really refreshing one person and you made a a reference to this she said to me I've been in the classroom for 18 years and this is the most feedback I have ever received and I didn't really view the discussion we were having as me providing feedback it was simply hey here's what I learned tell me more and it was just seen as extremely extremely valuable so I think we're on to something by spending time looking at the classroom level and the individual teacher, what the students are doing in that classroom and why. And so I think that's really, really valuable and that our, our shift in how we're looking at our work is, is appropriate. And another thing that you mentioned multiple times now is policy context. So let's linger there for, for just a minute. What would you suggest to policymakers regarding work that they could undertake to support these efforts? Well, immediately, one of the things we noticed by looking at the uh, school improvement plans was the pressure that schools and districts felt to check off various boxes for, in Georgia, for example, it was the CCRPI, right? Like if I, if I do X, Y, and Z, I get more points. If we use this language of choice that in some spheres, legislators are favorable, right? Like they like charter schools and choice there. 
so the thing would be to, okay, you, you want to have this accountability metric. I'm not going to argue that right now, but how about we build in choice to how those, how those achievements are completed? Let me give you one example that would be very easy for a legislator to approve, and I don't think controversial at all. So one of the things we noticed was that schools get bonus points for signing up for PBIS, positive behavior intervention uh, systems that are promoted by the U.S. Department of Education. Schools want to do that, that's fine. If the legislator said, you don't get five points for PBIS, you get five points for dealing with issues of student motivation in your school. As long as you can demonstrate to us that you're signed up for some sort of experience that's to help you foster positive, you know, so PBIS is about fostering positive school climate. Great. There's a range of, of programs, initiatives, and frameworks that have been developed to create positive school climates. PBIS is one. So why not allow choice? so that districts can align their particular school climate work with other things that they're doing, right? If they're doing a reading program and it's not aligned with the motivational frame of another initiative that they have, or it's not aligned with overall district goals, but they're doing it because it meets some requirement, create an accountability system that allows the school district to demonstrate that they're doing the category, school climate, school safety, academic recovery, you know, uh, STEM, whatever it is that you get points for, and allow them a range of ways to uh, do that and encourage them to make it coherent. So one of the things we saw is schools, you felt so bad because they're struggling. They're signing up for this and signing up for that, but the two things they signed up for are kind of, they're kind of in conflict pedagogically. They're kind of in conflict I'm not even saying one is better than the other. It's just, it's not healthy for an organization to have conflicting programs and initiatives. So why not create an accountability system which says, we just want to see evidence that you folks are trying to work in these areas, that you're identifying problems and that you're crafting solutions. We think one solution is this PBAIS. Fine, but there's some others. If you can demonstrate that it's real, that it exists, and that you have fidelity to it and you're assessing it to see if it works, then we're all, you, get, you get credit for trying that. So let's take this idea of choice and build it into these accountability frameworks as an initial step. Now, that's not very radical. It's not very, I don't think it's very controversial. The whole choice idea in policy circles is very big. Districts can opt out of certain mandates if they can demonstrate they're doing something well. Why not expand that notion into some of the criteria that are on state accountability systems such that schools can have the opportunity to be more conscious about aligning all of their initiatives that point in a similar direction. Forcing them into one model and having no other choice probably isn't going to solve the, the issues that we face because the problems that schools face vary by locale. In the abstract way, they're very similar, but in concrete terms, there's different histories and different solutions are needed at different times for different buildings and different districts. So you can't expect one, there is no silver bullet, David, like you said. There's no silver bullet. Let the educators have some authority to make some decisions within frameworks that a legislator and policymaker can understand. You have to be working on your school climate. You have to be, you know, so is that a bullying, anti-bullying initiative? Whatever it is, as long as you can demonstrate you're working on it and it's consistent with the direction your school is headed in, that would be helpful to schools. And it doesn't mandate everybody do the same thing. Everyone doesn't have to believe in the same techniques of classroom design or student motivation, but it would create the conditions for those who want to try different approaches, the, the legitimacy to do that, and, and encourage them to assess it. 
And if it is working, they can share that with the legislature and the policy people in the state ad, and they can share it. And it can become, hey, this is something that's worked in these three districts. Why don't you, why don't you learn more about it? And I think that would be an initial start. Like I said, it's small, but it creates the possibility. It takes the pressure off of districts to check off boxes to meet mandates and allows them to think a little bit more carefully about their direction, where they're headed, and then the kinds of initiatives that they want to engage in, including professional learning, that match that. And so that everything is pointing in a common direction where they've been, where they want to go. And we know that that's part of being an effective organization. I don't think there's too much question about that. If the organization is pulled in 14 directions, it's going to struggle. So the state policymakers, legislature has a responsibility to create the conditions so that schools can focus on the direction that's needed for them based on their careful assessment of where they are. And they should help with that. As I hear you respond to that prompt about suggestions to policymakers, the accountability system that you suggest seems to me to revolve again around the notion of trust. So current accountability systems seem to avoid an emphasis on trust. There seems to be more of the checkbox type of thing. And it seems sort of counterintuitive or hypocritical almost to be talking about places of learning and giving students choice and not doing that at the organizational level. It just seems to be misaligned. The efforts and the language and the tools and the ways that we assess and measure and hold people accountable, I don't find that educators are anti-accountability at all. I think the entire process of teaching and learning is completely about accountability. Here are my learners, here are my students, and here's where we need to go. And I'm going to get them there. I think that's accountability in a, in a great, uh, in a very significant way. So I just see a big disconnect, and I think trust is... Well, a- David, any teacher knows you walk into your classroom and you're not accountable to the students in the appropriate way, you get eaten alive. If you have responsibility, and when you're not fulfilling it, you, you sense it in the classroom. It's visceral, right? If you can't do your job, it's students know. Right. Sure. Sure. The second thing is, is that for policymakers, if they say, well, we don't trust that you'll, you know, that your school climate or school culture work is appropriate. So we're going to make you do this. My response would be like, look, there's no evidence that the lack of trust has served anybody. It hasn't improved schools. Um, there's not a lot of evidence that any of the, these things by themselves really, really make a big difference, right? Does, does PBIS work or not? You know, in some cases, there's some evidence that it does. If work means that there's less behavior issues, in some cases, it doesn't. And there's the, the, the building in of the non-trust has not served to improve the system in a personal relationship or in an organization or in a political government relationship. Once that trust is broken, it's hard to reinstate, but I guess the the minimal message was is that I think the time has come where we need to try a different approach and we at least need to give that a chance and at least have conversations about, okay, well, what kind of checkup mechanism would you like? We want to have choice in this respect. What kind of checkup mechanism would make you folks happy given that you don't really trust us, which we're not even going to argue about anymore. It's just a fact. There's a lack of trust. Fine. There's a lack of trust on both ends. Teachers, you know, we don't, teachers don't trust the publishing companies who make the test. Teachers you know, and there's reasons for that. And lawmakers maybe don't trust the teachers. Maybe there's reasons for that. So we have to actually take that problem on by, you know, step-by-step working on it. So the instituting more lack of trust isn't going to solve any of the problems that we have. 
And the fact of the matter is the system's too big, too complex, and too varied to be managed like a command and control. Like we said, education takes place ultimately at that classroom level, and no matter how much surveillance and policy pressure and mandates you want, that classroom's where it really happens. And you can't, you can't have someone who really excels in the classroom if their hands are tied. They can't do their job. The, the nature of teaching is you have to have your hands on time. Otherwise, you can't be a professional or you can't do your job. So we have to figure out together in a professional way how to solve that problem. Um, but I do think our work has suggested that trust is an important part of the part of the solution. There's other parts too, but policy-wise and organizational-wise and classroom level-wise, I think it's important to uh, advance that discussion. What is it that you have learned about teaching and learning as a result of this research effort? Before meeting and working with you folks, I had a relatively broad and maybe even dogmatic negative view of professional development. And that's what I was in, even the, that change in language was as a result of working with you folks. And it's just the teachers, um, the experiences that I saw in various professional development activities of, of either districts or third party vendors or the state uh, were generally you know, very unappealing. And I thought not only ineffective, but in some ways harmful. So the first thing that I've learned is that there is an alternative and that it's a very valuable alternative. And this isn't to say that it's the only alternative, but because it is an alternative, it opens up space to think about professional learning in a different way. And it thinks about the professional learning being, you know, we've tried to have it as an iterative process. We have the research arm, we have the professional learning team, we have work with the Schlechty Center, we have our, our, our personal dialogue about all things education. And those things have all contributed to a richer professional development experience, both for the participants, but also the people who read and learn about the work that, that we're doing together. So that's the first thing, that there is an alternative, and it's, one doesn't have to have this negative idea about professional development, that professional learning is extremely uh, valuable and important and can be very affirming, not only feel-good affirming, but affirming meaning like your group, the professional part of you is growing and advancing with your colleagues. The second thing is that the value in that professional learning of having broader discussions. So one of the things I know that first participants are sort of might say, you know, I don't really understand what's being said. You know, I just want to know how to do this in my classroom. And of course, that's a positive instinct. Your teachers, they have practical demands that they face every day and they, they want help. But I've seen the value of what, what some people might call these more philosophical discussions, because when we did those interviews, Teacher after teacher after teacher told us, um, the ones that had the most experience with it and really tried, they said, after that first year, I started, I started to get it. I started to see the value of thinking this way about teaching and learning. And it made me see that, you know, there's a perception, there's the lack of trust in teachers, and then there's this perception that teachers are just practical people who implement lesson plans every day. That's it. And they're not. They're thinking smart, philosophically culturally rich people who, when given a chance, really flourished. And some of the best education moments I've had are in those focus groups with teachers who participated and explained the transformation that they went through. And there's that one time where, or a couple times where the teachers said, you know, I was about ready to retire and this is now the third phase of my career and it's the best because they were renewed because of these ideas and ways of thinking about teaching and learning. Some people said, you know, if I had had this 20 years ago, my career would have been very different and probably more productive. And so the intellectually rich, 
but yet practically significant part of this professional learning really affirms the value of that work, right? So that there's a pressure, like just, you know, tell me where to put the sticky notes. And sometimes that that's needed. But I think what, what it affirmed for me is that thinking about the work we're doing together and creating conditions for that thinking is a really valuable activity. And even if it's frustrating at first because it seems nebulous, it really is transformative. And it also provides a sense of hope because people are in a position to be more active thinkers and active participants in their own routines, right? We get caught in our own routines. So a lot of this work asks people to reflect on what are those routines? What, you know, what do parents actually think of your school? What are the students, how do they actually respond to your lesson? And you sort of, once you become open to that, you start having very rich discussions about teaching and learning. And I, I saw that emerge for people who were pretty committed to the process and, you know, put in a good effort. But those kinds of anecdotal things were pretty consistent across people who participated a lot. And that, that gave me hope. So it's not all, you know, oh, there's nothing we do or the policy direction is the wrong way. It's like, yeah, there's, there's some problems, but there's also some good things going on. And there's a chance for people to participate in it and really demonstrate the value of the work that they're doing and grow professionally, right? I think this is not only about public education, it's about affirming and renewing the profession. And I've learned that that's possible, that that's, that's actually taking place. And then that's in part where hope lies. Is there anything else you'd like to share? Any burning issue that we haven't already addressed or said we're going to park that for another discussion? Anything else you want to, to add? No, I, I think I'm, I'm done, but I appreciate the offer. Okay. You know, when we ask that question, focus groups, we often get no, the best except, <laughs> and then they, they keep going. So, uh, yeah. so here's the last question then. What next? What's, what's Mark's encore? I know you're writing a book right now and maybe it's two. Well, I'm, I've got two projects, and they're, they're related. One is the book, and the book is called Skinner's Ghost and the Smart Machine, and that's a reference to B.F. Skinner, the famous radical behaviorist psychologist of the 1950s and 60s. It explores the motivational psychology that's embedded in emerging educational technologies and social media, uh, learning algorithms, uh, big data learning algorithms, the platforms that run Facebook, Netflix, Amazon, and how those platforms are being imported into education. And so it looks at how these things are premised on behavioral psychology, and it explores the origin of that and the implication of that, looking at how these influence when we talk about 21st century skills, what do we actually mean by that? So I show that there's a very particular notion of skill. Talk about when there's this discussion of social emotional learning, what's actually being promoted by that uh, personalized learning? What does that actually mean in the context of these learning algorithms and digital technologies? Um, development of that thinking going all the way back to Pascal um, and looking how, examining how that has been mixed with what's called um, artificial intelligence. Learning and artificial intelligence is what makes, you know, learning analytics work. That's premised on what used to be known as cybernetics. And so the book traces, the first part of the book traces all of that. Now, out of that comes a methodological critique. And so I'm working to develop an alternative methodological approach with some other people who are far smarter than I am that solves the problem of measurement and education by, by not mandating that we measure anything, but creates a, a very rigorous framework for analyzing patterns and data without making assumptions about that data or inferences that are inappropriate about that data. And it's, it's an, a philosophically rich alternative framework that I think shows a lot of promise 
So I'm pretty excited. I mean, I could talk forever about those two things, so I better stop. Yeah, I was getting ready to say, and I will say it now, uh, that yeah, just a minute ago you said, no, you were done talking, and then I asked you that one question, and there you go. So uh, we don't even have to buy the book now. That's, that's beyond the cliff notes. <laughs> no, that's, that's really interesting. I think the title is a definite hook, and then this whole notion of how you've rolled AI and those algorithms and looking at social media into what's actually happening every single day in a classroom level when you get right down to it with testing and, and other other ways that people are gauging the quality of a, a school or a learner's experience, I think is really fascinating. So Mark, I want to say thank you again very much for giving us a, a glimpse into Paige's research from your perspective and for providing us with some very thought-provoking material on what really matters most in teaching and learning. Greatly appreciate it. Well, thank you, Dave. It's, it's been a, a very significant part of my professional career has been my relationship with you, Marta, and the, and the PAGE team and, and the Schlechty Center folks. Uh, it's had a huge effect on me, um, and I, uh, I feel honored and uh, lucky to have participated. Well, thanks again, and have a great day. All right, take care. Thanks for listening today. Find the Lead, Learn, Change podcast on your search engine, iTunes, or other listening app. Leave a rating, write a review, subscribe, and share with others. In the meantime, go lead, go learn, go make a change, go. Go.